Welcome to How I Did It, where Coda's philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. My guest in this episode is Violet Rumiliotis. Violet is the CEO of Settlement Services International, which is a community-based not-for-profit and social enterprise. Violet was also the 2017 Telstra Businesswoman of the Year. And in this episode, she shares some of the secrets of her career success, how she's met certain challenges, the traits that underlie her work and her leadership style. Uh, She also talks about resilience and she talks about the importance of positivity at community. I'm sure you'll enjoy this, this episode and I hope you do. Morning Violet, how are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much for giving me your time out here in Ashfield. Um, could we start with um, you telling us a little bit about what you're doing here at SSI? Well, SSI is a not-for-profit organisation. started about 20 years ago. But essentially, our p- mission and purpose is to alleviate poverty and to bring a sense of equality into Australian community. So help people meet their full potential. And you have achieved your time here and prior, uh, you've achieved a lot for yourself and for the community. What role has your work ethic played in that? I think work ethic is critical in many ways because it's about the drivers and the passion. And I think that anyone who leads or has a vision and is able to take others with them and to allocate resources in a way that's going to have a, a common good sort of outcome it also drives you further. But work ethic, I mean, a lot of what's been achieved by me and SSI comes down to really, at the end of the day, old-fashioned hard work. Yeah, and those the things you talked about at the start of the answer, didn't you born with those things or are they things that you can learn? I think it's a bit of both, I really do. Uh, nurture and nature. But growing up as a daughter of Greek immigrants, I did see hard work paid off. It was so visible in so many different ways. But I also saw that hard work didn't necessarily bring you justice and equity. And so that's what really drove me, I think, as a younger woman, and now all my career and my voluntary and professional work has been around social justice and looking at ways where we can actually find opportunities for people to to meet their full potential, tap into their passion and their strengths and give them facilitate opportunities. So it sounds like your values very much drive what you do and maybe your leadership style, is that right? Yeah, I think values plays an important role and knowing yourself and what it is that your triggers are, what motivates and inspires and also having a lens of optimism Mm. Uh, and an openness, you know, that human nature, people, of course, we're not all Pollyannas, you know, yeah. that it's a big bad world, but also there's a lot of kindness, a lot of goodness, and I do really believe that the great majority of people want what's best for themselves, of course, and mm. have aspirations, but they want good things for, for the neighbours and other people as well. So if we can provide opportunities where people can assist or live good lives, then people will step up. Yeah, and optimism uh, has to be a very important part of your job and your work and the whole spirit of this place, I, I, I guess. But I imagine it isn't easy. I was actually gonna say, I, I, when I've been here before, I've been to the bottle shop downstairs, yeah. and I was gonna ask you if you, this job ever drives you to drink. But, um, <laughs> the, but the sense of optimism can't be easy. So how, so the how, how I did it, um, 
part of, the, of this podcast um, concept. How do you maintain a sense of optimism in a big bad world? You have clarity in what your mission and purpose is and have a vision and know that that vision is going to happen really to you know envision it and say I can do this and I know that I can do it because there are many other people who are willing to step up and work collaboratively and I think that everything that uh, I have achieved and this organization has achieved is around collaboration is about sharing a vision so mm. being very clear about where you want to go uh, about saying that we have the resources so you need good planning it mm. needs to be strategic you need to understand your stakeholders and your audience yeah. and how you're going to get there. And then you, you set a timeline and a plan and you move forward. You build a good team and it's either professionals but also you know, stakeholders and people from community, from all walks of life. It is a collaboration. You can't do anything on your own. It's not easy to come up with the right vision and it's not easy to get everyone on the same page. And then it's not easy to keep people working on the same page to the same vision. So you talked about strategy and plans and there's a lot that goes into that. Can you just expand on what you meant by that? Well, I think it goes to the heart of what you initially, we initially talked about, which is you know having passion and a belief that with your values and with resources and right planning, you can get to where you want to go. And SSI is a good example of that, mm. a very small vision, a big vision, a mm. small organisation. Yeah that's grown something like 2,000%. Mm. And it is about good business acumen. It's about tapping into uh, the right resources and the right people. It's about, as a leader, knowing that you, you're not the best at everything. I know what I'm good at. I know my strengths and I, and I work on those and I, I use them to the, the max. But I also know the types of people I need to surround myself to get advice mm. and to collaborate. So it is about knowing where you want to go and then sitting down and actually building your team, mm. a high-performing team. Uh, and it is about values and about skills and competencies. It's about having a diverse lens on what you value. And I, I joke quite often that when I was a young graduate, uh, it was punishable by death, really, when you worked in the community sector to say anything good about a public servant, particularly <laughs> if they were funding you, or a corporate. You would never consider working with a, a business or a big corporation. And over time, I have seen, as someone who's worked in the not-for-profit sector, that we have a lot to offer. We're innovative, mm. we've got great ideas, because we're on the ground and we see where the gaps are and we're, we're client-centered or person-centered. So we know what we need to do to improve lives. And thankfully, we've realized that there are a lot of people in the corporate and business world who want to work with us. And it's about those cross-sectoral, cross-industry collaborations where you're bringing in multiple um, diverse mindsets, mm. um, skills, resources and approaches is really, I think, that's really elevated our work. And, and that sounds like, dare I say, a business approach. SSI is a charity, but you call it a business. Why? We call ourselves a social, a social business because um, Professor Muhammad Yunus talks about social business as, uh, you know, a, an organisation or business set up that, mm. you know, no dividends for itself, but it's actually there to solve a social problem. Yeah. 
And I think that SSI runs as a social business because we want to we run efficiently, so we can you know have revenues that are unallocated, and we can put it into you know improving our impact mm. in areas where we know government and others won't fund, mm. and there's there's true gaps, and they're, they're usually those wicked problems. And for me, what's in, uh, enticing is to have resources uh, and get and um, and funds that we can actually allocate into programs that doesn't have government set KPIs and very narrow parameters. It's actually targeted because we've actually seen where the gaps are and mm. we've, we, we might have developed some IP or a program mm. that is actually addressing it and we want to enhance it. It's a very powerful thing for a not-for-profit or an organisation like ours to have you know, unallocated revenue yep. and surpluses. And over the last five years, we've actually allocated $5 million of our own funds into self-funded projects. But this is, um, to many, and many within the non-profit, and also potentially the philanthropy community, I'd say, um, a concept that people struggle with. And I'm fortunate I've met Mohammed Yunus and I've had a lot of, lot of exposure to social enterprise. And uh, I understand the concept of social business. Mm. But a lot of people think non-profits, charities, what are they doing talking about uh, revenue and being excited by growth and all of the business-like language that you used. Um, so what would you say to those, to those people, people that are yet to be converted or just haven't, haven't been exposed to the idea that a non-profit can work in a very different way? I would say that we need to reframe how we approach uh, our not-for-profit work and in many ways, we, we've been pushed, kicking and screaming into rethinking and reframing. And it's been a gift because it's allowed us to not be dependent on government funding mm. and to really tap into the power that we have. And I quite often talk with smaller not-for-profits, small, little small organisations that might have a, you know, 500,000 turnover and say that power with, when we're together, when I, a large organisation recognises the strength of a small local NGO that's got threads throughout the community, that the impact of their work is on the ground. And if we have structures and we set up uh, a model where we can lead, you can have a strong leader organisation that's very strong governance, can actually negotiate with government and has you know, a strong voice and influence, and then subcontract and provide resources to small organisations to keep doing what they do best uh, and to help them develop their, their governance structures, their due diligence, improve on standards, set some, you know, look at accreditation and, and actually operate like a well-run business mm. with a social impact, then we're, no one can beat what we're doing mm. because it is about good practice, good governance and social impact, so doing what we do best and, and refining it. If we're doing it separately, of course we have impact, but it's minimal. Yeah. When you can actually find models where you're actually collaborating, learning from each other, you're, you know, you're really looking at your back office and making savings there, and you're, and you're, you're moving together, there's transparency in decision making, there's respect, uh, then uh, you know, that corporate language because quite often we would be challenged when we talked about revenues it's all mm -hmm. are we a corporation now you mm -hmm. know heart yeah. where's the heart and I've said we need heart and head we have to be um, diligent in our governance and how we operate 
because we go to government and we say, we are an accredited organisation, we've got standards, we can deliver, you build trust with those funders, and once you have the, the data and the outcomes, then you, you, philanthropists are interested, mm -hmm. corporates are interested, they want to be part of what you have to offer. And quite often what we offer is that connection to community, the social purpose, a sense of uh, values and seeing results on the ground and really feeling that you're making a difference. Whether you're a large corporate, like we've worked with Alliance, where you know, a cadetship program in getting mm. refugees into jobs. Um, and the people that I've spoken to at Alliance have said, I can't tell you what it means to me to have our company doing this work in this mm. program. It makes me feel proud. It makes me feel that we're contributing. So it is about tapping into people's, you know, people's hearts, mm. but also in a pragmatic way that's going to get good outcomes. And of course, productive diversity is great for Alliance to have people of diverse backgrounds working in their business as well. You, you mentioned refugees there, I think, for the first time. We'll come back to that in a second. Mm. Um, uh, but, um, but in fact, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that. Talk about that now. So how do you define a refugee, in, particularly in the Australian context? First and foremost, a refugee is a person. And quite often I think we get caught up in um, describing people who've arrived on our shores as refugees, asylum seekers, and in visa types. And, and all the negativity that comes with that. Asylum seekers somehow have become uh, queue jumpers or illegal entrants and mm -hmm. refugee for me is a human being yeah. who uh, has multiple nuanced identities and they just happen to have one facet of that that they've been forced, they're displaced, they've been forced to, to leave their country, their, their home uh, and usually because of war, persecution, climate change. So what they have in common is that they've been forced to live leave their homes because they can't live there safely. We, we hear, at least I think we hear, and have done for the last um, few years, um, quite a lot about refugees and asylum seekers. What, what, so we might say, well, we know something of them, whether we do or not. But what do we not know about them? What do we not hear beyond them being human, being people? What, what else do we not know about refugees, do you think? I think what an epiphany for many people is that refugees, we have this very negative stereotype Quite often it's, you know, a positive frame, it's about with kindness, mm -hmm. but it's uh, they're uneducated, uh, they're, they're helpless, uh, they, they have very little uh, capacity. But in fact, refugees and those who I've met are some of the most extraordinary human beings I have come across. Firstly, their resilience and capacity to get up every morning mm -hmm. and, and get on with the day when they've seen family members tortured or murdered, uh, lost everything, um, and, uh, and in a new country, usually they, they can't speak the language, mm. and there's still a sense of hope. And they come, uh, they may come with some trauma, but they also come with many strengths. They're people who've run businesses, they've run corporations, they've been senior public servants, mm. they're, they're husbands and wives, and mm. you know uh, they've got families, they've got dreams, they're great musicians, they're artists, uh, they're tilers, they're div as diverse as anything. Yeah. But what they have in common is they've had to flee and they've had to start again. And many come 
with literally a suitcase. Mm. And, uh, and, and they're told, here you are, start again. I taught a refugee and asylum um, seeker centre not far from here. And one of the things I was struck by was um, how wrong I was to think that once you've arrived and we were receiving a modicum of support, that you, that you were okay. Mm. That you were in the system and that you were basically within that womb almost of, of support. I found a very different story, uh, and you, you're smiling now. People won't be able to see mm. that, but um, but obviously you'd 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 be able to tell us a little bit more about what life is really like for people when they arrive and the process they have to go through. So could you tell us a little bit about that to give us insight? Well, I'll start by saying something really positive, which is Australia has a lot to be proud of. I know quite often we like to sort of, you know, knock ourselves around and be critical, but we in the area of refugees and humanitarian entrance. We are doing very well. Since the Second World War, we've had something like 800,000 refugees and humanitarian entrants, displaced people arrive on our shores. Mm -hmm. And our settlement programs, which have been funded by governments on both, on, you know, all colour of government, have invested in settlement programs and infrastructure that today allows us to have a socially cohesive uh, society. Mm. If you look at Australia, we don't have the hate crimes and the level of racism that you will see in Europe and other countries. We really have done some things very well. Mm. And I think that is around recognising people arrive that they need support. Of course, my, when my parents came in the 50s, there were no services like SSI. Mm. They had to do things on their own, learn English as best as they could and find about services through usually others who had arrived. Uh, from the same community who said, I'll help you out for a while, live with me, go and get a job at the glass factory, you know, all of that sort of brokering and support that, that people do, community does, mm. which is an important element of our work today. Mm. But to have professionalised services that actually recognise and can broker and case manage people for the first six months to 18 months is an extraordinary gift because mm. it actually recognises that people need that initial support, and typically when they come, uh, most would say want a job, that's the first thing they talk about, so securing employment, about improving their English or, or starting from scratch for some of them, about found, finding long-term housing, also putting them in touch with critical essential services, banks, uh, health services, all of that, and then linking them in with community, community orientation, where are the local shops that you can go and buy, the herbs mm. and spices you need mm. for your cooking or your meals, faith organisations, all the great cultural and religious organisations that we have, sporting, that really help younger people. Mm. One of the you know lovely stories are young people who say, how can I make Australian friends? Mm. Where can I go? How should I dress? What should I say here? You know, they want to learn the Australian way of life. And even when we start little soccer teams, after a while they say, I don't want to play soccer with uh, my Syrian friends or Iraqis. I want to play with Australians. <laughs> And it's this great sense to settlement services are able to actually help people integrate yep. and, and, and a sense of belonging and making friendships outside of their initial community groups. One thing that's come through in the conversation so far for me uh, on the receiving end of what you're saying is that you, um, you approach things in a positive way. And we talked about that positive outlook, but, um, but how important do you think that is in enabling you to do what you do and what you've achieved so far. Do you think that glass half full 
approach and articulating a positive story is important is really important part of what you do oh critical mm. because sometimes yeah there are days i get deflated i, I have to be honest there sometimes there's our, our national debates around uh, population policy about our reconciliation with first nations people about australia trying to find its identity who mm. are we and if you talk about being australian what does that mean and sometimes we, we, we go down to the lowest common denominators, which are very, can be very demoralising. But I always see a challenge, a problem as a challenge in, in a good way to say, okay, what are the roadblocks? How can we get around this? Uh, and I think it is about seeing, growing up in an environment where I saw people with challenges who said, that's okay, I'm going to find a way around it, or it's not going to define me. It's, it's, it might put me back for a while, but but eventually I'm going to move forward. I've got this dream, I've got this goal, and I'm going to get there. And so people who are running businesses who essentially, they should, they should have failed because they, they didn't know the language, they had no networks, they didn't really know the market and had no capital, but somehow they made it work. And that's about their networks uh, linking into what uh, their belief in themselves and also thinking I've got to make a living I'm going to mm. find a way to do it I can't get a job somewhere my English isn't good enough or they don't recognize my qualifications then I'm going to make my own luck I'm going to make my own job you mentioned there back to your childhood yes. and what you saw and, and what that um, provoked within you how do you do that day-to-day -day here you lead a, a team and you lead a team in, in challenging um, circumstances as you as you've outlined your job as the leader includes keeping that team motivated and positive so what do you do as a leader to do that particularly on the days when it's not easy well I do think a lot about uh, self-care so time out to reflect uh, to read to talk to people reading stories and meeting people energizes me so if I get out I go and have a cup of coffee with one of the you know the cold-faced staff mm. And I come back feeling so motivated and so inspired. They do the hard work really quite often. They're the ones who have to sit across the table and look at the client or the refugee and say, I'm sorry, that's all I can do for you. But also find, uh, I see how they tap into community and other networks. Mm. And it, you know, it is this commitment to do, go above and beyond. It's all that extra work that they do that, we, that goes to the culture of this place. Can I say, and maybe reflects the time I've spent in corporate life, that that's an interesting model of leadership where when you go, first of all, you, you're spending that time with staff members, say, one-on-one. -on -one. When you do that, you're listening to them. You're not there to, to download leadership information or you know inspirational messages and all the kind of things that m many managers and leaders would, would do if they're in that situation. So... Your approach is really to, to take from them what and, and listen listen to them and be inspired by that, communicate with them rather than top down tell them what to do. Can you tell me more about the value of listening? Absolutely. I, I can tell a funny story of being in a taxi in Greece, which is an experience within itself, <laughs> the taxi driver, but you know, the chaotic roads and the systems. But this amazing taxi driver who had been stitches, because talking about how the government decided they wanted to change all the signage, but never talked to anyone who drives or taxi drivers, <laughs> you know, and it was a disaster. 
And I relate that to the work I do. In, I think in any business, if you don't spend time listening to your customer base, uh, to your people who are doing the work, at the end of the day, organisations like SSI, you know, our resource, our main resource, you know, our treasure, mm. you know, our, our key capital is our staff. If we don't take the time to listen and hear their reflections, and they're, as I said, at the coalface, they know what's happening. They've got their feelers out. They are the best ones to advise. And that's really where I get the ideas around where the gaps, where, you know, that strategic thinking around where we're going to go, what do we need to do, what's, what's coming ahead. And quite often in our roadshows to staff, I say, I want you to, to feel peaceful and, and, and comforted that you're doing the hard work day to day but I'm, I'm with, the, with the executive team and the board, we're thinking about the next three to five years. Where are we going? What are we doing? I think there are two things that almost every charity in Australia would like to be able to say that they've achieved in the last five or 10 years, and that is significant growth and innovation. Again, what can you kind of tell us about how you've managed to do that? Mindset. Mm is very important and not depending on, all right, let's look at what government grants are around and let's go for those grants. And waiting for the money uh, or permission from government policy to, to move forward. When you're in tune with your constituency and your mission and purpose, whether it's about making profits or, or building a business or providing services, if you want to do it well, you actually take the initiative in setting the, the, your vision and purpose. You don't wait for policy. But, but how, like, how does that play out? I mean, is that about being able to be, in your case, someone who is a very good and compelling storyteller? You can lay out a vision and, and it's being a communicator. Uh, is it being persistent and um, uh, forward and assertive in knocking down doors and trying to get to people uh, or is it something else? Or, or I think it is about being able to, being able to uh, put a compelling vision and roadmap and being able to take people with me. Mm. Um, I, I spend a lot of time, uh, many people will tell me and all you know all the sort of leadership you know little surveys that we do and um, profiles I'm a great connector and networker. I'm really energised by people. Uh, you know, I make the most of every minute of the day. I do, a, you know, and I'm always thinking ahead. Yeah. And so it's about um, sitting down and spending time over a cup of coffee or a drink and saying, we might not work together today, but one day there's going to be an opportunity where we can actually collaborate. And it's about um, having a diverse network, broad and diverse, male, female, yeah. government, non-government, corporate, business, civil society, you know, faith, everything, unions, always looking, I always see opportunity to collaborate and yeah. utilise resources in kind and financial towards a common purpose. And I look at what we have in common and not our differences. But it's not all been... Um a dream-like sequence where everything's gone right and I know that you've spoken previously about um, the benefit of failing um, you might phrase it differently so I'll invite you mm. to talk about how you see failure I'll just say one thing which is for me I think some of my best mm. experiences have been my worst experiences um, that's the, that's what I've learned most from and benefited from over time but 
Can you tell us a little bit about um, the failure side of things from your perspective? Well, you know, as a as a you know as a person, I've my best learning has been on the job, from a young graduate again, and yeah. I've I've had the benefit of wonderful mentors and leaders and managers who have helped me uh, see when I failed, when I've made mistakes, or I haven't known how to do something, to you know to help coach me and say that's okay. You know, what have you learned from it? Move forward. Don't let that define you. And and so there's so many examples for me as you know as a as a young professional and even today I can say I learn from other people I read and I think wow I'm going to give this a go this is new I'm uh, I'm a great I love learning uh, and I love listening to what others do and adapt it and see if it's going to work for me so it's not about me knowing everything and always got the solutions and in organisations I mean SSI. Uh, many you know seven or eight years ago we had zero staff you know and a budget we had four hundred thousand dollars but nothing else no contracts mm. uh, it was a very painful time because you know we we had built something and we had these aspirations and we lost a, a tender and lost a contract to a for-profit to an mm. ASX listed company mm. never worked with refugees but they got the gig and it was very painful um, and we could have closed shop but we thought, no, we, we'll wait. We'll wait five years. We were, you know, um, you know, optimistic community workers, and we waited five years. And in that five years, though, um, we also built, you know, started thinking about where are the gaps, what can we do if we get some funding, and then when we did win that tender back, which was a wonderful thing. Yeah, that was a big day. It was a big day, a great celebration. Mm, we, you know, my board the message was Violet diversify mm. and I said yes we've learned from our mistake we're not going to have just one um, tender one contract and and that's what we did just before we leave um, failure behind what's your attitude to it do you do you like um, uh, I was gonna say many in the sector that might might, might not be true but do you uh, try and avoid failure do you um, try and adopt a conservative approach or do you embrace the possibility of failure in order to innovate? Well, I think anyone you talk to uh, about me would say that I'm a great risk taker. I, I have a great risk appetite, yeah. which at times I can see my board gets very <laughs> nervous and they, you know, they times try to subdue and say, well, let's just rethink this. I do have a capacity for risk. I can live with it. I'm really good with um, working with ambiguity and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, I, I can deal with it. Mm. And, but I recognise that not everyone can. And I think being able to have a team that has a good mix, because I need to have people saying, hang on, mm. great idea, but how are we going to get there? And how do we know that's what we need to do? So I've learned more recently over the last three or four years as we've grown, great to follow my gut instinct, mm. really good to say, I think this is going to be a goer. But I also say, okay, let's get some data here. Let's get some evidence. A couple of quick questions yeah. before we start to let you get back to work. Um, how important is thinking time? How important is time out to think from a very what would be a very busy job? It's critical. And every now and then I have a little whinge with my, my executive assistant and my colleagues about, oh, my diary's getting so full. And they go, but you're your worst enemy. We try and you put things in. I go, yes, yeah. you know, it's kind of dance. But uh, I have become far more mature in that approach. And I do... Uh, say no to mm. more things 
and I do spend more time uh, reflecting and thinking and I know that my best ideas are when I'm not at work, mm. when I'm not in the office and it's when I'm walking, um, uh, sleeping sometimes I wake up and I think, wow, oh, that's a great idea, yeah. I quickly write it down. Or when I'm, you know, socialising with friends and something, you know, an idea comes up. So that time away from the busyness and the BAU is really important. And, and I know that even more now. I'm far better CEO today than I was five years ago because I've understood that. Right. Uh, something I wasn't planning to ask you, but you mm. mentioned interest to me, is um, the idea of discipline as well there, the idea that you've learned to say no. One of my things in my work career is that um, one of the most dangerous things you can do is say we should do this, we should do it, because there's an almost infinite list things come at you every day and you can just grab at them and say we should do that but there's a value a real value to staying on course and being disciplined is that something that you have developed yourself sounds like it yes I've developed it uh, and I've seen the benefits and I've also become far better about um, being a bit closed I'm a very open person with big, big ideas and thinking and mm. uh, happy to have a group of people and we you know brainstorm ideas mm. I've become better at saying, okay, we're going to pick these three ideas, we're going to get the data and the business case, and now when I speak to people, instead of assuming that they're going to go and do A, B, and C by a certain time, because that's what I would do, that's yeah. just the way I operate, I actually now make sure that I'm really clear about my expectations. And that works both ways, because mm -hmm. instead of me then getting frustrated and thinking, oh, it's not done yet, and, uh, but if I say something, I might get upset, I've, uh, colleagues have also given the feedback they prefer it as well yeah. I know what's required and by when I, I read the other day no I heard the other day someone, someone said I can't remember unfortunately who it was that said this but they said um, that the biggest mistake with communication is the belief it's taken place <laughs> exactly I about, love right? that yes it's good isn't it um, so so we're, we're nearly at the end now I want to touch on the um, fact that you were um you were chosen as the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year a couple of years ago. Um, how, what effect did that have on you and the organisation? Just, just kick us off with that. Well, after we got over the shock, you know, and the laughter, because we were very amused, we loved it, and then someone said, well, that's imposter syndrome, why shouldn't, you know, a not-for-profit uh, CEO win, yeah. which is very true. It was a, a very empowering um, uh, opportunity and we made the most of it. I did uh, for myself to be able to feel that I was, uh, doors opened in rooms that I could not imagine that I would have the opportunity to be and to be able to articulate a message around the strength of refugee migrant women and the economic and social benefits that they bring to this country. Uh, it was a very powerful opportunity for me to, to articulate that. Mm and Ignite Small Business, one of our startups, what came from that also was, okay, why don't we um, allocate and work towards funding for scholarships um, for, for business women, migrant business women. And that's a great thing that's come out of it that we want to sustain to support um, migrant and refugee business women. The other thing for me, it was an opportunity to break that that stereotypical mold that the not-for-profit sector is not efficient, isn't innovative, mm. 
and uh, is and also on on the, the other hand to break that stereotype that uh, corporations aren't values driven that it's only you know the, right. the corp civil society yep. organizations so it was a, an opportunity to actually again um, envision opportunities to collaborate with uh, partners that we wouldn't have the opportunity to do so it was a case of never never look a gift horse in the mouth really took that opportunity and, and leveraged it as much as you can. That's so, right. Something else you just said there I think is relevant to the whole conversation and your approach is um, you're, you're looking not just at how people perceive the non-profit sector but also the corporate sector and maybe touching on the fact that wherever you choose to work or end up working, people, people want and benefit from having purpose, a sense of purpose about their work, don't yes, they? Yes, that's uh, right. You, my kind of closing observation is that you're at the real vanguard on the coalface at, at the same time uh, of the movement that we're seeing, and hopefully we'll see a lot more of in Australia, which is that we're blurring all of the lines, we're taking the stereotypes and we're having a fresh look at how the different actors in society work together, what, what your role is in government, corporate, non-profit, and people are working together in new ways with, with um, a, a renewed sense of optimism. I, I, that's how I see, in part, your work. Is that is that a fair summation? Yes, I think so. And that a reminder to all of us, I've said this before, that we live in a society, not an economy, and mm. that we all have an important role to play. And yeah, people wanting to do good. And uh, we're very lucky in organisations like ours because every day we see great acts of kindness in our local neighbourhoods small business people, you know, school children, people doing wonderful, kind things. In the, the narrative, I think in the corporate world, the narrative is very much uh, at that public level that can, it can be quite negative around any issue. And so for, for me, it's about ensuring that we can all identify that we have a role to play um, and, that, uh, and that every individual can make a difference. You know, and, and the call out to people usually is, have you seen someone new in your local area or co coffee shop? Go and say hello. Uh, be curious about your new neighbours, if they look different to you. Mm. Uh, you know, invite them for a barbecue, uh, uh, you know, try some of their food. And just, you know, that, just that, that sense of being, yeah. you know, which Australians do so well. Well, we have your staff. Um, looks like they're, they're they're busy, keen to yeah. get on with their jobs Sorry. now. Sorry outside. About that. No, no. We did all. We did well. We've done very well. <laughs> I think it's a good place. A good, a good place to end anyway. With a call for people to um, um, uh, act first of all, and and um, just really foster that sense of community and remember that the people next door, or, uh, or in or in the government department, or in the company that you're working with, they're, they're people, and we need to get to know each other and That's have right. that same sense of. Um, curiosity and, and compassion, I That's suppose. That's right. So, so, been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much. Congratulations on everything you've achieved and um, best of luck for, for the future because you're doing very important work and um, Thank you, much appreciate And you too. Your work, I, you know, I'm a LinkedIn fan of your stuff too. I read your stuff. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.